Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty, audio content producer here. Broadly speaking, you can solve customer problems two ways. You can solve them directly with customer support or try and get to the root cause by building or improving a product. Jeff Vincent has done both. In this interview from our archives back when Jeff was Wistia's head of product in 2016, he's now group product manager at HubSpot, Back then, Jeff had been laser-focused on solving problems for customers of the business video platform. It left him uniquely positioned to comment on the relationship between product teams and customer support. Jeff joined us for a wide-ranging chat which covered everything from how to incorporate customer feedback into product roadmaps to the importance of being your authentic self in the workplace. He was interviewed at the time by another Jeff, former head of platform partnerships at Intercom, Jeff Gardner. While a huge amount has changed in customer service and product in the intervening years, I think you'll find there are a lot of enduring insights into how customer service and product can work together to create great customer experiences. So without further ado, here's their conversation. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. So to get started, can you tell us just a little bit about Wistia? You know, what's the company's mission there and how has the company evolved over time? So Wistia is this really interesting mix because we are, as you know, like very data informed, but we're also on this mission to make business more human. And what we saw was that video was this really engaging and emotionally personal medium, right? It's, a, it's an opportunity for businesses to create content that scales, but also an opportunity to put the faces that make up the brand on screen for, for customers, for prospects, for internal communication. And uh, so, so we're a video platform for business. And what we focus on is hardworking video, right? And on the consumer side, platforms like YouTube are really good at the viral video, right? How many views can I get? And so translating that to business, we thought that hardworking video should be these videos that maybe they get fewer views, but, but they were created for a purpose. They have a goal like conversion, right? Getting people to sign up or maybe getting people to sign up for a newsletter, getting people to take some sort of action either while they're watching the video or after they have some sort of trackable goal. And in terms of the way we've evolved, really we've, we've always been focused on this more human aspect, right? Using video to communicate in, a, in an authentic way. But I would say that, you know, my, my history at the company, we, I started, I think there were six people and now we're pushing 70 or 80, I think. And really it's just been, it's evolved when we, we've had more perspectives. Right? And we're, we're doing more initiatives within the company now, of course, with more people. But really, it's like the same core. Um, we're talking all the time about how businesses are using video and how we think they should be using video in the future. And that idea of hardworking video, I think, is one that's really important. You know, like you mentioned, uh, YouTube and, uh, you know, the ability for content creators there to uh, link their videos through to really have a lot of data behind what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, and so... You know, I don't. I don't think. I think that's pretty unique for businesses, and I don't think they've had a lot of that in the past. Yeah, the idea is is to take control of your content. So we we do have some customers that use YouTube, but maybe they push them to a page on their website for just as an example that has some more premium content, and then they're diving into the analytics that we provide to understand where are people tuning in, where are they dropping out, um, what kind of tools could I overlay within my video content to get more signups, that kind of thing. So let's dive into you for a minute. Uh, you've been in your current role at Wistia for about a year and a half now, but for a long time you held a very different role there, uh, Director of Customer Happiness. 
What was the driving force for moving from a customer support leadership role into a product leadership role? So um, like I said before, I, I've been at Wistia for a long time. I've been here for uh, probably almost six years. And at that time, when I first came in, we had a couple of customers and the challenge was, how do we support them? What the heck should we be doing? Their, their emails are going directly to the CEO and we don't know what to do. So in my time in that support leadership role, it was about growing a team um, and setting up processes so we could take care of customers the way that we thought that we should. And so we grew that team from, well, zero people when I started to up to 12 people when I ended up changing roles, something like that. And at the time, it was just that 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 team was going to continue to scale, right? And we needed a really good people-focused manager. And that was Aaron. Aaron Wheeler came from Moz and replaced me in that role. And he's just been incredible. And it happened to be perfect timing, really. Like these two things kind of ran into each other. We're on the the product side. We, We didn't have a product team right? Um, Brendan, who is a co-founder and CTO, had been building the original product, and he had a few engineers, and he had our head of product design, Joe, and they were working through uh, priorities and roadmaps and, and that kind of thing. But they saw opportunities to take on bigger challenges, right? To, to strike a better balance between uh, working on customer-facing issues and features and, and also the back-end work, right? Striking a balance between the two of those and really grow the team, right? Add user research, add design, add product management. And so they, they asked me if I would take on that role and figure out how we could grow out a team. And that was really, really exciting. So those two things kind of just happened to me overnight. Uh, and it's right. been a really fun challenge. Uh, curiously, or, or maybe perhaps not, uh, you're not the first person I've met who's made this pretty similar career transition from a more customer support or customer facing role into a more product role. Do you think uh, this might be, you know, something that's becoming more common or might be a more common career trajectory for the future that we're going to see a lot more of? When people ask me about that, like whether they should be looking to make that transition, um, I definitely recommend it. I definitely recommend looking into it. For me, I care really deeply about the customer experience. I care more about the customer experience than pretty much anything else. And so in a support role, you're interfacing directly with the customer, but very often the root of the problem is in product, right? And so kind of following those problems upstream, I was always very involved, especially when we had a really small team and and no product team, I was very involved in product and how we updated the product to support that better customer experience, right? And, and for me, so the, that transition meant I, I had a bigger impact on a larger percentage of the customer base, right? We have lots of people who use us every day, but only a very small percent who end up interacting with us in support. But the, I think the thing from a personality standpoint that I would probably ask people to think about is, sure, the, the impact that you can have on the product side can be bigger, but it's certainly in the spacing is much bigger, right? So, so I may not have a big impact on the customer experience for, say, a month, two months before we ship something, right? I don't right. get recognized and the team doesn't get recognized for the work that they do as much as opposed to those people who get kind of addicted to that good morphine drip of uh, or dopamine or whatever of I respond to a support request and someone says, hey, thanks, Jeff. Like, that's awesome. That totally solves my problem. Um, right. So that, that's, I think, the balance that people need to figure out. Cool. So I guess, you know, let's talk a little bit, uh, you know, there's a lot of early stage companies that listen to this podcast, and I'm sure a lot of them are wondering, or, you know, there are people in similar situations that are trying to grow a support team from zero to, you know, X. 
Um, how did you decide how to structure the team? What were the kind of things that, uh, you know, influenced that decision? And maybe just speak a little bit to kind of the volume of incoming customer requests that you guys were taking on. Yeah, this is such a good one, such a tricky one, too. I, I think, I mean, we can talk contact info later, but I, I definitely would encourage people to reach out because so much of this can be conditional. But for us, um, so let's see, when, when I left, um, the way that the sport team looked was we had two separate teams um, between four and six on each team, and we had team leads for both. And and we had people who would come up through support and who, who clearly had people management skills, right? They were they were better managers uh, than I was. They probably just didn't have that experience and, and that cross-company vision. And so the, their first step was being elevated to team leads, and they took on the hard work of keeping people really engaged. And we wanted to do a better job of having consistent conversations with each of our teammates, right? That That's when you identify the issues that otherwise could lead to, to burnout. And, and at that time, customer happiness was really support and education. So one part was answering tickets in the inbox, and then the other part was thinking about more proactive um, or, or scalable education in the form of documentation or in-app messaging. Sure. Um, so nowadays, customer happiness is... Uh, just for comparison, it's, it's support, it's customer success, it's education, and then it's it's some of the transactional stuff, like how do we do billing, that kind of thing. And the volume at, at the time when I left was about two to 300 conversations per day. And I think we've just about doubled um, since then. Wow. Yeah. Not a uh, insignificant amount of incoming requests then. <laughs> no, but you know, the team's up to it. Absolutely. Cool. So I've heard you say previously, uh, perhaps it was in another podcast, that there are four key points that really help create successful customers, uh, trust, confidence, consistency, and authenticity. Um, I'm particularly curious about that last one. I've heard you previously describe authenticity as being more human as a business, and that it's a key component of you guys' mission at Wistia. How did you come to that as an essential ingredient of your customer and or product strategy? So the overarching belief for us there is that when people come to work, they should be able to be their true selves. And that if we were able to hire people and build a culture that consistently valued people being their real, you know, weird selves, um, that we were going to get far more out of each employee um, and that they were going to be far happier in the work that they were doing. And, and that's all about authenticity, right? So, so mm -hmm. starting from that perspective, that was sort of our default. And I think that authenticity works perfectly with support because you want to be really honest with the customer. And what you need to figure out is what information you should be sharing and what information um, you shouldn't. And so we, we try to have conversations all the time about that. But I think in terms of creating an experience, you know, we're not perfect. And no, no software platform that, that serves a large number of customers is perfect. And I think a lot of times, whether it's a bug or... We, we pass along some, some information that ends up being wrong or, or whatever, we, we, we end up getting a pass um, because we're able to follow up and be human or because we've, we've really set that up in terms of putting ourselves on camera, that kind of thing, so that the customer doesn't think about us as a corporation, right? You get mad at right. Microsoft. You get mad at Uber, right? You get mad at these faceless organizations, when the customer knows you as a person, when they can say honestly, oh, I, you know, I, I know that Jeff and Brendan and Chris and Chris and all those people over at Wistia are working hard on this problem. 
they, they tend to just relate to you a little bit differently, right? They, they see their own imperfections as well. So I, I think that that piece is incredibly important. It's why we, um, I think in our history, we've, we've never lost a support person because of burnout. We've lost sure. because they've graduated on, onto a better role. Do you think, you know, in terms of that authenticity and, and really being about the individuals involved, do you think it's impossible to keep that authenticity as you become a very large company? No. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I, I think that's what video is really great for. Um, our team continues to put themselves out there. We, we send videos directly to the customer that are from the rep that they're working with, or we send videos out around things like, um, hey, we're taking a break for the holiday. And uh, here's a little video from all of us saying we're going to be out for the holiday, um, but we love serving you. Uh, we do that for weekends as well. So when people reach out on the weekend and we don't provide support, um, we'll follow up with an email that, that that shows off some of those support faces. So I think it's I think it has to pervade the entire company. Right. So you're authentic within. But it's also about the way you communicate with the customer. Um, that, 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 I mean, our webpage still has a single person's face on it. it happens to be mine. <laughs> they should A-B test yeah. that because I bet you mine is, is bad for <laughs> business. But um, uh, we continue to put a face out there. And, uh, and I think that, that that sets up that relationship for success. One thing that maybe feel free to contradict me if I'm, uh, you know, being incorrect here, but I heard you speak at one point, I think maybe it was a user conf a few years ago. And one of the points that you made was that you kind of actively worked to keep customers from becoming dependent on the support team. Uh, and I think this probably speaks to that education stuff we were talking about before. But, you know, you you guys make it just a little bit harder for people to get in touch. Uh, you know, your contact link is maybe put into the knowledge base or help documentation of on your site. Um, what's the thinking there? Are you kind of betting that educating customers is uh, a better way to make sure that they're not dependent on you? I don't think you're wrong at all. The only detail there that I want to make sure we get right is that customers can contact us within their accounts. Um, and we try to make that obvious, although we haven't gone so far as to use a widget like the way that, that Intercom does, a consistent uh, widget that sort of prompts the conversation. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I still very much believe that for support, you should be trying to automate where you can and then be really intensely human where you can't. And what I mean by that is, is if you think about it from the customer's perspective, especially now we're seeing this trend that customers want a resolution to the problem. They don't necessarily want to talk to somebody in all cases, right? What's most important is that the problem gets fixed. And so when we were having a lot of our support be extremely technical or uh, something that was really hard to keep up with in chat, right? Especially around volume, but also anything that may be specific to that customer's use case where it takes time to figure out what to do, that would be really hard with a high volume. Right. And so for us, we, we thought about how could we get people the answers that they needed faster without necessarily having to bury it in a queue of emails that we then have to work through. And, and so that led us to invest very heavily in our, in our documentation, in our um, education resources. And so we want to put those out there. It's not necessarily as a barrier. It's because we think they're really great and we want yep. people to, to make use of those. And, and I, I certainly agree with what you said around training the customer to solve their own problem because we don't provide 24-7 support, for example, right now. And a lot of the small business um, owners that I've spoken with, marketing managers, um, they're, they're doing this some of this work in their extra time, right? You, you, you're busy nine to five, you go home and you put 
kids to bed or, or whatever. And then maybe you go back and you do a few more hours of work. And one of those things they may be trying to do, uh, and I'm stealing this entire concept from, from a talk by uh, Jeff Lawson from Twilio, uh, something you really want to enable them to do is to solve their problem when it's it's 9.30 p.m. and there's nobody in the office. So sure, it, sure. It, it all means investing heavily in your education resources and, and really putting pressure on the product uh, to work right, not just to rely on the person. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Paul Adams, our VP of product, has written a lot about what goes into our product roadmaps at Intercom. And... You know, there's uh, five inputs in our case, including obvious things like new ideas or features to help scale. But a crucial one, uh, and I think probably this holds true for both us and you guys at Wistia, is that the voice of the customer gets a really important input. Um, how do you guys decide what goes into your product roadmap? And, you know, how do you take that customer information and help it inform what you're going to build at Wistia? This is like the question, right? <laughs> we could do a whole right. episode. I hope, I hope we do right. a whole episode on this question sometime. Um First of all, in case Paul happens to listen to this episode, that guy is brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. I love listening to him when he comes on the show. Um, but yeah, there's five points in, in the intercom roadmap in terms of inputs. And if I remember them, it's um, new, new ideas, like you said. It's also customer problems. It's features that help you scale. It's, it's fixing or, or iterating on existing features. And then there's just design quality improvements, right? Things right, that you right. want to improve because you put it out there and now you've learned something new about the way you design the product and you're like, that's got to that's gotta change. And I think for us, the, the customer really informs all of those. Our team is very much art and science, and it's always about trying to find the right balance. In a conversation, it's not necessarily led by the data, but it's also not necessarily led by, hey, this, this customer who you know, may or may not pay us a lot of money is saying, we need to do this, like, let's figure out how to get it done. Very often it's, here are some things that we feel because of our gut uh, and for how long we've been working on this. These are some things that we think are really important. And by the way, here are a few points about customers that you know, may line up with this, may not line up with this at all, that we just need to be aware of. And so what it's really about is, is how you pick those channels where the voice of the customer comes in. And we're, we're very lucky, and I would bet Intercom has this as well. We we're um, trying out, we're piloting a, a voice of the customer program. A customer champ, Bobby, is trying to dive deep into something we want to be working on, on the, from the product perspective in the near future. 
just talking to maybe 20 customers to figure out how they use it, what some of the problems are um, that they're running into, what some of the things that are on the horizon for them are so that we can kind of add all of that up. But the other channels we have out there, let's see, um, we, we have a Slack community for our customers. We have almost a thousand customers in there. And uh, there's a product feedback channel that's specific for people to say, hey, th- I happen to notice this was a problem. And that has been really, really wonderful for some of the sort of small iterative improvements, right? Like uh, error message copy or uh, like a flow that's not set up right. It's amazing to hear feedback from a single customer and have other ones chime in and say, yeah, that was always confusing to me. I guess I kind of forgot because I got used to how it is. But uh, that's been really a great channel for us. We also have our Betapug group. Betapug is basic experience testing and product user group. Um, and that was a, the naming was a collaboration between right. Joe, product design, and, and Molly, who is now a product manager, but she came on for product research. And, and she was, just had very strong vision for what a group of customers could do for us and, and how we could move faster by getting their input. And so she's built a group of probably 300 customers that anything from here's a mock-up to, hey, we're thinking about working on this. What are some of your feelings? She gets very fast feedback through that, and all the product teams make use of that. I think a really, really important channel, even though the volume is low, is we try to do like one to two customers either in office um, or, or customer visits per month. Um, so events could be that, or you know, a customer happens to be in town and, and wants to come by, and we'll you know, we'll hit them up with all kinds of questions or even we'll go and, and see them in their habitat and find out what's going on with them. And we find ourselves going back to that all the time when we go to build a new feature. So it's about how you incorporate the voice of the customer. And for us, it's very rarely the customer drives. Uh, well, certainly it's the customer does not drive the roadmap, but it's that there are customer points um, and, and input that informs every single uh, piece of the roadmap from those new ideas to new features to quality improvements. That's all driven um, very much by our gut, but also with and aided by customer feedback. Cool. And I think, you know, like like I was saying before, many of our listeners are at early stage startups. And I think, you know, knowing that all of those channels exist, uh, seeing, you know, and getting to hear a little bit about how you guys use all those different channels to inform, you know, the different inputs to the roadmap is really, really interesting. It's been a, it's been an incredible experience for us for sure. In terms of taking all that feedback in and getting all these feedback from all these different channels, how do you parse through uh, you know the vast majority of it that you know is never going to be built, and how do you kind of do that in a way that's human and you know authentic and make sure that you avoid bloat in what you're shipping? We we always try to start with the idea of what are we solving for both on the feature side, you know, a specific change we're making, like what are we trying to solve for here, but also Wisti in general, like what, what are we there for? Um, and, and so for us, we're all about control uh, over your video content and insight into how it performs. And, and so that, that's, that can be a really great barometer or lens to, to look through feedback that you're getting to say, okay, does this, does this make sense for us? Is this the direction we should be going in? And, and I mentioned the Slack channel that we have, the product feedback channel. That can be great because people will reach out and we actually see our existing customers following up with, with uh, someone who suggested something to say, hey, that doesn't feel super wistia. Maybe you should try this other thing. And I, I think that that supports the point that what we've done a great job of is, is staying true to what we say our, our product mission is, um, what the things that we try to help with, the things that we don't try to help the customer with. 
I, I think that that's really important. So, so solving the problem and then saying a little bit about what that could look like, what that doesn't look like. Um, I think that a lot of feedback is just about stepping back. And, and I'm going to take, take an analogy from my friend Dan. You, you step back and you play producer, right? He's, in, he's into the world of audio, so, mm-hmm. so he uses audio-based analogy. Um, so when you're playing producer, you listen to all the input. Right. Someone says, hey, like, I don't I don't understand how this feature works or, hey, this copy could be different or why did we do this? Why didn't we do this other feature that I was yelling about? And you take all that feedback in and it's it's you have to remember and be centered on it's it's my call. Right. Or 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 it's our call as a team. Um, and so that's the way that the product team tries to work. We take a ton of feedback internally. Um, and then we also, like I said, go out to the customer and get it. But it, it's all that that all serves uh, making our gut stronger. Uh, making our uh, process better internally for how we get something on a roadmap and how we prioritize it, it doesn't end up running the show. So uh, for me, um, a lot of it is listening to the internal feedback we get and saying, hey, that's a really good point. Um, let me put that on, on the list, right? Let me put that in the backlog. And then later on, we're going to go back through and, and, uh, and eliminate those things. And uh, it's, at this point, it's, I'm trying to move it to a distributed system. So our PMs who are charged with getting really deep into the customer context, I may take some feedback in and add it to the backlog. And they go through and they say, these three are in, these three are out. They're just not that important. I ran them by a few people. Didn't end up being something that stuck. Um, and maybe this is a good lead-in. Uh, so Hunter Walk, who led product management at YouTube, uh, was on the show recently, and he made the point that being consensus-driven is death from a product management perspective. And it sounds like uh, what you're talking about there is exactly that. You take a lot of input, uh, but then it really has to come down to uh, one person who you know has the authority to make a call. Is that right? Yeah, I love that. I love when he said that. And I think if you pair that with Ken Norton, who recently, he's from uh, Google Ventures or something like that. And, and he said uh, that, that if you don't say no, it's death or to the product or, or something to that extent. I, what I took away was say no a lot. <laughs> um, I think you pair those two together and you're, you're exactly right. Is uh, it, You can't let those external inputs run the show or else, at least for us, our biggest fear is being obviated, right? Building these features and, and iterating on making incremental changes, in, you know, iterating on existing features or, or taking one more step with our current feature set and being obviated by someone who came in with sort of fresh eyes and said, well, you know, this is the problem that the customer is trying to solve. We can take these 12 steps down to two. And suddenly Wistia is left, you know, we've built all of this stuff up and it doesn't end up being that useful. The customer says, well, thanks for fixing that bug or adding this little feature that I asked for, but I'm actually going to go over here because that team had, had built this whole product that actually solves my problem much better. Um, and, and so I think that that's a little bit of what Hunter and Ken is saying is that you need a little bit of that buffer between you and the feedback that you're getting to say, what is true north for us? Where are we going to go? And, and, and being true to what your customers broadly really need, what they hired you for, because that's how you hopefully um, stay aware of how do we obviate ourselves? How do we completely change the paradigm and not just iterate on what we currently have? And I, I think that that sets us up. I mean, we're, we're no longer a startup, I suppose, but we're still a pretty small company that solves a, an important problem for a lot of customers. And I think that that's why that's been successful for us. You know, on that note, I think that's you've make, covered a really important point there that uh, you know, I think some of the best businesses in the world do a really great job at, you know, deprecating themselves constantly uh, and, and moving on to new iterations. 
um, or new versions of themselves. How do you, as kind of a leader of product at Wistia, and then, you know, how do you help get this across to your PMs now as well is, you know, how do you encourage that? How do you get them to think of, you know, to take that step back and try to think completely out of the box and from a, you know, kind of a first principles approach? Well, I don't exactly know how to get people to think like that. I don't know if there's a tried and true approach, but I think that the the conversations that we have internally are good models for that, right? And, and Brendan, who is my you know manager and, and my mentor really in all this product stuff, he's very good at thinking that way. And so that's sort of been infused in the way I think now, right? Where I have this little voice in the back of my head that's his somewhere that says like, there's a better way to do this, right? And it's not just take what you currently have and sort of turn the crank. There is another way of doing this and that you can do anything. You know, we're lucky we work in software. You could do just about anything if you if you figure out the right way to do it. So um, they'll come in, all, all of our team comes in really with with these ideas for, hey, you know, we, we could put, and I won't give anything away because I do think we're building the future, but hey, we, we could make uh, adding a video to the web page much easier by starting on the web page, right? That's where the customer wants, wants to work. Um, and Intercom is really based on this too, right? We can make communicating with the customer much easier if we started in the tool instead of being in the inbox because what right. a weird switch that you have to make. What a bummer. Um, so, so again, like knowing what you stand for, knowing what you solve, knowing what your brand stands for, um, that keep that, throw away just about everything else, right? Be, be obsessed with the problem uh, and then think about it through the lens of why are we here? And so for us, it's like, it's things like simplicity. It's things like being open to a horizontal usage, right? And then it's about providing the customer with more control and more insight into, into how their content performs. And then you can sort of take it as a specific feature that a customer uh, really needs a specific use case, and you say, what are we going to do here to resolve this problem? And a lot of that after that is about being, we don't add a lot of structure, right? It's about being open in the conversation around like, what's the wackiest thing? I think if some people sat in our meetings, they would say like, oh my God, this is crazy that you you go on so many tangents <laughs> while you're talking about these things. And that's that's, you know, it's not necessarily by design, it's who we are, but it's also supports the idea of Sometimes you get off on this tangent and you come back and you're like, whoa, we could, we, we should blow all this away. We should be going straight to the source or whatever. I, I think that's sure. how you, you keep that first principles approach alive. All right, great. Well, thank you so much again, Jeff, and uh, have a great day. I hope you enjoyed that conversation from our archives. Jeff Vincent is now Group Product Manager at HubSpot. You'll find tons more great chats in our back catalogue of more than 400 episodes. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for listening.